Welcome to A Table in the Corner, a podcast by me, Russell Wasserfall. As a writer, editor, photographer, and cookbook publisher, I've been working in the media space for over three decades. I've also run music venues and bars, owned a couple of restaurants, and eaten a lot of fabulous meals. Join me as I chat to the chefs, producers, and entrepreneurs who drive the food industry. Together, we'll dig deeper into our obsession with the business of eating. If you like the show, hitting follow really helps our numbers. You can also leave content ideas and comments on the Instagram page at A Table in the Corner. For today's episode, I've driven out to, I've taken the long and winding road to Hart Bay um, through Constantia to Muse Farm, where I am chatting to Iming Lin. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Iming, you have sort of featured in a couple of shows already. We've never met, though. Um, Ryan Cole mentioned you when I interviewed him, so did Ivor, and they mentioned you with glowing sort of <laughs> little little hearts around the around the quotes. People seem to absolutely love what you do, and what is it that you do? We grow veggies and herbs, um, okay. focused on flavor for chefs and restaurants in Cape Town and Stellenbosch. Do you call yourself a smallholder, a farmer? Do you call yourself a market gardener, a kitchen gardener? What's the term? Probably market gardener, I guess, would be the, the commonly used overseas term would be market gardener. Market gardener. As I understand in my background reading, you grew for um, Dan Barber at Blue Hills with the, with the Stone Barns project. Yeah, so in 2015, when I decided I actually wanted a farm but didn't know how to farm, knew how to home garden, um, I looked for different farms to volunteer with um, and ended up at Stone Mounds for two separate months and then a few, two other farms in the Hudson River Valley of New York and then realized that I should try to do a full season. Okay. And so went back and did Stone Barnes's apprenticeship program for 2016. Um, so for the full season, spent the year in the fields, um, and that's obviously where Blue Hills at Stone Barns is. And, and I mean, Stone Barns it's, describes itself as a centre for food and agriculture. Mm. What is its kind of purpose? It, it, it basically advances the cause of quality food and gardening. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what their exact sort of byline is or theme is, but it's basically about developing food leaders, I think. Um, and their specific track of that has evolved over the years, educating and creating opportunities for farmers, new farmers, um, in everything from apprenticeships and volunteering programs to a conference. And I think more recently it's shifted because now they don't have an apprenticeship program anymore into the avenue that was there when I was there, but it's, it's developed further, which is a bit of more on the research front. So whether it's farming methods or more climate adaptable crops or new varieties and different methodologies and techniques, but sort of instead of educating young farmers directly, it's still the conference and it's still things that can be implemented by farmers. Okay. With the view, what, to preserving topsoil, preserving crops, preserving old varietals of edible plants or introducing new ones? Um, yeah, I'd say it's broadly the, there are many terms for it, I guess, but the broadly the regenerative agriculture world with the aims to have more people being able to farm in a way that both 
is adaptable to a changing climate and farm in a way that ecologically is more responsible and has less of a negative impact to climate change. I saw somewhere in an article that you were talking about, was it millet? Or one one of the grains, sorghum, it was sorghum, exactly, sorry, yes, it was sorghum. And it's kind of adaptability to climate change and drier conditions. Mm -hmm. Are you growing sorghum here? We are growing sorghum. It's that very yellow-green, no one can see, but it's a very yellow-green grass over there. Just for the benefit of the listeners, we're sitting here in the restaurant that you've built looking over this farm you've created and there's all these amazingly healthy looking rows of crops sunflowers and it looks like maize of some sort and then as you say that green is is sorghum Mm. and i'm seeing interesting grains like sorghum featuring on the menus of the people that i mentioned earlier on ivor jones's menus on um, ryan cole's menus how much of that is you because you're making the crops available and how much of that is them asking you to do that? For the sorghum, we that sorghum is specifically a juicing sorghum, although Ryan and Nina were using it as a grain as well, experimenting with the grain as well. So I think it's both. There are chefs that request certain things, then there's me sort of saying, hmm, I think this might be interesting, let's try that thing. So, And I think there's probably a third party in there, well, there's four, I guess. There's the consumer themselves, and then there's the broader critic world, I guess. Yes. Critic and award world, I okay. guess. Um, I think, obviously, depending on the individual, but there's different feedback loops there. You know, in general, not even just in the food world, stories are what I think people are seeking, and that's a story behind things that's very much the case people want a a story behind their food and the thing is that it can't be a story of oh well i walked along Mm. and got this out of the ground it it needs to be a story that talks to uh, i don't know the zeitgeist maybe that's just a bit of a big word for my podcast (laughs) but 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 talks to regeneration ecological sensitivity and 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 so on and so forth are you consciously growing for that reason, or you growing the way you grow just because that's how you want to do it? I'm growing how I grow because that's how I want to do it. So for me, work has always had to be sort of socially, environmentally meaningful. My background's in public health. Farming, there was this sort of literally like immediate moment um, where I'd been reading The Third Plate, Dan Barber's book. It was sort of this immediate realization that farming can be uh, environmentally impactful in a positive way. And then the socially and it's an intellectual challenge and things. So for me, like, I wouldn't want to grow any other way. Um, we grow a lot of crops and I've definitely been advised by farmers in the U.S. You know, you want to start with 10 crops. We have a, we have over 50 crops and over 150 varieties. 50 varieties. Yeah. Which is not how I would farm if it was just about money. No, okay. no, 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 <laughs> but, exactly. But it's way more interesting. Yeah. Um, and fun to explore. And, and I think that's part of the sort of... Um, you know, speaking to somebody like Ivor or Ryan or, or Peter and Ashley at Fain or all the, the other lovely chefs around is realizing that they're craftspeople and they want a great product to be able to work with and yes. that they're excited about it. And I think part of what's exciting for them is that they know that I'm equally as excited in discovering them, in growing them, in trying to grow this weird crop. So, yeah, I think it's, we are a supplier, but I think for some of them, there's like this shared personality or characteristic that I think they relate to. Relate to, exactly. (laughs) I want to just circle back a bit, because you said you grew up somewhere where Mm -hmm. agriculture wasn't a thing. I grew up in the Bay Area, um, 
where, I mean, I remember fields of apple trees um, just before it all got bulldozed and became Silicon Valley. Um, it was more, yeah, so agriculture was on the periphery of where we lived or where I grew up. But Cal I, what I loved about growing up in California in the 80s and 90s was that, that anything was possible and that you created your own future in that very sort of privileged, liberal, democratic American sense. Uh, but that it was a world of an entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. But I just never, well, no, I did think about where food came from, but farming was just not one of those things that was really that you thought about. talked about. Yeah. yeah. You say there's f over 50 crops. crops? Yeah. How do you get to 50 crops on this little piece of land? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's very, some crops are very small little sections. In some places there's one meter of this or three meters of that. Um, and then other things like the shiso perillas, a bed each, basically. And then I guess because it's quite seasonal, things shift that right now all the spring crops have grown out and gone out and, you know, there'll be three different daikons and radicchios and lettuce and all that. Okay. So over the course of the season, we grow, we grow pretty much every crop I can find in a seed catalog that I think is interesting. <laughs> really? And then you present it to the chefs and they go, oh, I'll take that. Or, oh, I've read about that. Or can I, can yes. I make this? And they taste them. So are you often sampling with them and saying, here, taste this? when you drop off something? Yeah, especially in the early years when I did all the deliveries. I'd bring little samples of things and, you know, at the beginning of each sort of... Obviously, there isn't a season because things come and go and, and come in. But when there's a bulk of things, we'll send out samples of these are the summer squash or, you know, these are these tomato varieties of the eggplant this season um, or new herbs and that sort of thing. So the, the first season, you were speaking earlier about, you know, restaurants in the first two to four years and covering oneself. And so on the farm side, as we obviously learning the restaurants, our first season, we grew about we sold about 60 percent of what we grew. And now it's better understanding how the chefs use our ingredients and what they're looking for so the the trials are a little bit less risky less less risky and and, and you're doing better than 60 percent of your yeah so now we crops. sell everything pretty much and there's very little loss loss is pretty much on what i know i'm overgrowing when i put it in the ground and we've now freezing it or preserving it or using it on the farm events and that sort of thing and is there enough left over from supplying the restaurants to sell to the public in any way or is that just a no-no, you, you focus on the restaurants? Yeah, so in 2019, actually, just before COVID, we were, were always trying to figure out um, how do we not quite follow the restaurant's peakiness of their season yep. <laughs> as much, um, and how do we try to sell a little bit more in spring and fall, autumn. Um, <laughs> and um, so we tried a few different avenues with more bulk, bulk orders, um, which didn't really work. Um, but started doing these weekly veg boxes for people, which has been great. It's mainly been, it's, it's been a take up of, you know, maybe this season people aren't as interested in the Caraflex cabbage as they were last season, but you know, I, I changed my planting because of it, or this tomato is doing phenomenally well and I've got a bit of spare of that. And so we six to eight items, whatever really needs to move, tries to be like quite a diverse box, always only what we grow on the farm, um, which is a key thing for me. So always also on that list that Ivor or Ryan gets, um, our crop list is always only what we grow on the farm. We don't middleman anything. Middle, okay, and, and, yeah. and that's a great thing. So, so, so it's a completely self-contained unit. It must be interesting, though, because I'm guessing that when you do veg boxes to the public, you're not putting sorghum in there and three kinds of daikon. So you must be juggling stock 
in an yeah. interesting way and growing exactly for the restaurant that much and, and so it goes. Is that about right? Yeah. My husband used to say that we don't actually grow anything real humans eat. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that has shifted. And I would say that our veg box isn't for the person that's looking for 100% of their staples all the time. So yes. we usually like to throw in like a shiso or there'll be an interesting frying pepper. And daikon goes in fairly often, actually. So it's definitely... There aren't very many parents of young children buying our box. Uh, okay, <laughs> there are people you. who are enthusiastic home cooks who are like, you know, I would love domatillo and I can't find it anywhere else. Or, you know, I really love a bitter radicchio salad. So it's definitely, we kind of coin it as like the experimental home cook. The experimental home okay. chef, yeah. And how do they find you? Are you, are you online? Yeah. With, in fact, we had that conversation. Yes, so, yeah. so my designer friend Roxy is busy yeah. working on your new website and yes. you're including what, Shopify or some sort yeah, of ordering so system? Currently our we have two different websites um, one that Roxy designed originally just for the farm as info because our original customer was just the chefs yes. and then in 2020 I'd set up a very rudimentary Shopify site which is where the info on the veg box comes across um, weekly and we'll post about it on Instagram and the following week's box and what's in it so people you can be experimental, but you also get to know ahead of time. And okay. yeah, it's delivered on a Wednesday. Something you said earlier is that you grow for flavor. How do you grow for flavor? What is that about? Is it, is it about what you put into the soil, the, the, the natural process? How do you grow for flavor? Yeah, so I always feel like for me, flavor, it originates in many places. But for me, there's three key key things. So one is the soil itself, like you said, and that's both what we put in and what we don't do to it. One of the interesting things for me at Stone Barns was how often people talked about the biology of the soil and biology and farming. And as a, a home gardener that was fairly interested, I'd always heard people talk about chemistry, you know, how much nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium is in your soil. And we spoke about it, but not very much actually at Stone Barns. But basically we try to promote an environment in the soil that creates habitat for good beneficial uh, bacteria and fungi and other animals. And that those are actually the ones that are feeding the plants. And part of that is that it's obviously keeping plants healthy, but it's also about the complexity of the nutrients of the chemistry that is going to the plants and how that's translated in the crop into more vibrant, complex flavors. Like Western science is still trying to figure out some of it. Many years ago, I did a fun little taste test with friends that I often talk about. And this goes on to, for me, the second part of flavors, choosing varieties that are bred for flavor. So we grew sun gold tomatoes and my husband was ex interested in experimenting in small scale hydroponics, two little pots at home. And I grew some, this is before we started the farm in the soil at home which wasn't amazing soil, but it was soil at least. And he grew some hydroponically. And sun gold tomatoes have phenomenal flavor regardless. Yes. Their genetics is delicious. And we had some friends over and gave each of them six tomatoes, three hydroponic and three in the soil, blind little taste test. Didn't really, you know, it was just for fun kind of thing. And 100% picked the soil-grown tomatoes as better taste. And the hydroponic, I hadn't actually done it myself. And the hydroponic ones that I tasted were delicious. They were tart and sweet and, you know, wonderful. And if you tasted it, you'd say, great tomato. But then if you compared it to the soil-grown, there were just textures and layers in there, fruitiness and different things that 
weren't there. So the first part to me is the soil that has the potential to be able to feed this plant that comes from a variety that has great genetics for flavor. And then it's about picking those things or harvesting whatever it might be at its optimal time. As at the right to, moment. Yeah. As opposed to storing it for three months or it needing to ship in a container one meter deep and holding on a shelf for two weeks or something like that. And because you're growing and you're balancing the growth and the harvesting and the amount or the, the biomass of produce mm. that you're taking off for the restaurants, yeah. you've got that balance. So you're not really going to to hold something for three weeks in cold storage mm. or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, there goes the tractor, tractor again. again. So we just have to, to bear with us for the tractor sounds of the farm. Speaking of, just going, I want to come back to the soil. In a recent interview with Franck Dangereux from Food Barn, yes. you came up in conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things he was saying is that when he first got here in, and he started La Calom in the 90s, he and a couple of other chefs were trying to do something and all they could get was like yellow cheese from the supermarket a huge tomato with no flavor yeah. an iceberg lettuce that was it you couldn't get great ingredients mm. and he says that the terroir of the mm. soil here is such that you can grow amazing things yeah. and i should imagine that terroir must must factor into mm. because if you talk about the biology of the soil, you're talking about the microorganisms in the soil yeah. and the earthworms and all that sort of thing. So, so each little clump of soil in each region has a whole different makeup. Yes. Is that fact? Is that playing into the flavor of the produce you grow? It's interesting. I mean, I a few years ago, a botanist friend corrected me because I mentioned that the Cape soils were very poor, and he said they're not poor; they're just um, nutrient poor for vegetable farming, <laughs> um, which they are. They're some of the nu most nutrient low soils around, which is why Fainbos thrives here. But something that's interesting, Peter and Ashley from Fain have been exploring sort of Cape Coastal indigenous um, plants recently. Obviously, Quibiset Wolfhard's been doing it for, for a while as well. And so they brought um, something called uh, Prinium, which is in the garden over there. And uh, Luby Rush, who's oh, quite... Oh, no, Luby yeah. Rush, yes, yes. So she was really interesting because I think you know, it was this whole like Instagram chain where Peter mentioned and Quibis commented on it and then Luby commented on it. And she came over and she, we've been chatting you know, before that as well. And she was saying that the Prinia, it's a coastal plant. And so, although we are fairly close to the, the coast, obviously, but I think, you know, within a kilometer of the coast itself, the, the Prinia leaf gets a much more lemony flavor to it, a little bit more acidic, a little bit more lemony. Um, and she was saying ours has less of that sort of sour lemony uh, flavor to it, obviously because it's not sort of right on that coastal sandstone well, to yes. it. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's an obvious one where based on, it could also be based on the irrigation that we irrigate it more than it would be in nature. We've noticed that with the soot slide itself. Um, and there's definitely sort of something about, not, maybe it might not necessarily be flavor, but we save our seeds from our heirloom tomatoes. And there is something about plants, choosing from the plants or selecting from the plants that are more adapted for your soils and for your climate, the ones that are more robust and create better tasting fruits and things. I've always been fascinated with the 
issue of terroir related mm. to food yeah. rather than just wine. Because everyone talks about terroir in yeah. wine. And I remember years ago, Ruth Reichel, who was the iconic editor yes. of the American Gourmet magazine. Okay. When she was an intern on that magazine, she was sent down to collect Edna Lewis. Edna Lewis was from Virginia and she was the, the, the doyen of Southern cooking. Yes. And Edna Lewis was arriving from Virginia on a train. And she was like, why are you on, on a train? train? And she went to fetch her from the train station. She had all these parcels and all this baggage. And she bought all her ingredients with her right. for this dem for gourmet. And okay. Ruth said to her, well, you can buy this stuff here. You can buy corn and you can buy all that stuff right mm. here in New York. And her response was, mm. if it's not grown there, it's not from there, it won't taste like home, which is interesting. I'm yes. not sure if that, that aspect of the terroir of food applies to you, but I mean, if you're growing these plants in this soil, yes. there must be a, an almost a Western Cape or a local yeah. Hout Bay flavor, flavor to, to the food that you're supplying. Yeah. yeah, so I think that there's definitely the soil as a factor, and obviously terroir as a term refers to the soil, but I also wonder how much the landscape of a place from everything from the soil and underground to the atmosphere itself um, and where it's geographically located. One of the things that growing up in California and growing that I wasn't really aware of at all was sort of daylight sensitivity in, in plants and California being perfectly Mediterranean and never too cold and never too hot um, and not frosting, which in some ways is similar to here, but just seeing plants that I could grow in California as a kid and how they bolt or how they'd be light sensitive here. And so you couldn't start them at a certain time. And I wonder how much of that in terms of just simply are, I always get it mixed up, latitude, longitude, what affects the daylight hours and the seasons, how that can affect the flavor in a plant because it can shift its growth cycle as well. Absolutely. Quite interesting. Um, On the matter of flavor, let's change direction a little mm -hmm. bit because I want to ask you this. Do you eat in the restaurants that you supply? Do you go and taste what Ava Jones has done to your ingredients at Bo Constantia or Ryan at Salsify mm -hmm. or do you go to Fane? What's that like? What's it like going and eating your ingredients turned into something else? I think we definitely do. Um, Less often now than before kids, um, but hopefully more again soon. <laughs> so it's wonderful. I've never thought of myself as a particularly great cook. So for me, the interest is on this growing side and to see somebody create something with and be like, oh, that's amazing. You yeah. know, this is what we send you this crate of eggplants and, you know, it turns into this beautiful, delicious art piece, you know, yeah. that you can enjoy. So it's, it's such an interesting industry, the little bits of it that I, I see. Other than academia, this industry where I feel like people are so committed to constantly learning and experiencing things. Okay. Like I know in the restaurant world, there's this criticism about stages and is it just free labor or whatnot? And and obviously, you know, are you privileged enough to be able to fly somewhere and, you know, and, work, work, for and work for free and things. Yeah. But I love the ethos that we want to learn and we want to experiment we want to try and the other aspect of it is this like i find it an amazingly generous industry you know that they're so always like oh you know yaki always jokes he's like they're like so excited to give you free dishes for charging them for your ingredients you know <laughs> like, it doesn't always make sense but it's this lovely again i think it goes back to 
sort of there's this camaraderie about an excitement about the ingredient, whether it's from the growing to the doing something, crafting something with it. And there's this sort of shared community that happens around it. And I think that that runs through a lot of the chefs. Yeah. That they just can't wait. I, mean, I remember when I was working with Chef Rudy Liebenberg. Mm. I mean, Rudy Liebenberg was the head, was the head of Prudley's Cooking School for many years. And then he, he was at... Um, the Mount Nelson for years and years and years yeah. as the executive chef. And still, yeah. he, you'd go in and say, hey, chef, how are you doing? You can't believe what we're doing. Taste this cheese. Yeah. You know, he was always, he wanted to share yeah. something he'd either created or found. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that you find that with, with chefs. And it must be particular for you because you're actually growing and creating yeah. the raw ingredients that these people are using to make their art. As a tangent to food um, and back to art, sort of discovered the world of natural dye plants and making color. And that's gone from one hedgerow to half a block over there of, of color. And I went back to Stone Barns to visit and I was speaking to the farm director and I was saying, you know, we haven't really started marketing the color plants. And he said, well, but there's nothing different about it. He says, the community is the same. Like it's, it's the craftsperson that cares about how something's grown and how it's produced and the quality of the okay. story behind it. But currently your crafters are the chefs or the home cooks. And it's now the crafters, you know, for that market it would be the crafters who are the artists or the weavers or the or weavers whoever. or the exactly. people who are gonna knit with natural yeah. yarns. Exactly. Wow. But they're the personality who is that customer is the same, but the skill or the art or the craft that they express it through is just slightly different or is different. That, that really is interesting. And, it's, and it also shows an intersection of farming, not just with putting food on our table, mm. but so many other things. Yeah. There's a whole movement of, they're calling them different fiber sheds where, you know, it's, it is understanding that clothes is an incredibly dirty world, um, both from how, you know, the cotton is grown or the flax for the linen, or if it isn't cotton in a natural fabric, then, you know, what is that made out of yes. and where does that go when it's tossed away? But then also, yeah, how is it colored? And if it's a chemical dye, how is that washed off and where does that chemical go and how does it impact waterways and whole nother world wow. to explore? It is a whole nother world. <laughs> yeah. I think that in a future conversation, we might explore that. But mm, for now, we're on food. <laughs> we're on food. And I think it's time to end off. I've taken sure. enough of your time. Thank you so sure. much, England. Yeah, it's fun um, to chat. Yeah, yeah. It was, this was a fantastic yeah. chat. It was kind of constantly, sporadically interrupted by low-flying aircraft and <laughs> tractors and people yes. building retaining walls. But it makes life as a podcaster exciting. Yes. A little bit louder on a farm. Or different noises on a farm than in a restaurant. Than in a restaurant, yeah. Exactly. Thanks again. Cool. I really appreciate you talking to me. Yeah. Great to meet you. Thank you to my guest today and to all the creators, innovators, and sloggers who take the time to chat to me at a table in the corner. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a comment. Until we meet again, please consider what you eat and where it comes from. Most of all, support small business, consume sustainably, and wherever possible, buy local.